0: Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time, we listen to George do it as he explains how only a handful of mistakes can lead to a pretty serious situation.
1: what I'm going to talk about is uh, an accident that happened in Ann Arbor, Michigan, back in the 70s. I was flying for a company called Carson Helicopters. I was their corporate pilot, their fixed-wing pilot. This is a company that did aerial crane work with very large Sikorsky helicopters. And they had an operation out in Ann Arbor where they kept a, a, a helicopter and they kept a crew. And I would move crews around the country and uh, check out jobs and do many different things besides just fly the plane. But anyway, this was a Saturday. I don't remember the date exactly. It was in December, around Christmas. I got a phone call and I had my father-in-law visiting me and the phone rang and my wife didn't want me to answer the phone because she had her dad visiting. And I said, no, I've got to answer the phone, it's my job. So I answered the phone, of course, it was to go out to Ann Arbor and pick up a crew and bring them back because the company had a real big Christmas party so anyway, I'm on my way to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the plane I was—I flew back then was a, uh, a Beach 18, a modified Beach 18 called Volpart. had a Volpar conversion, which means it had a long nose, a nose gear, uh, it had a high cabin area, it was a, a H model. It was really nice flying airplane, it just wasn't very fast, and consequently, sometimes flying west, it took me quite a while to get to Ann Arbor, Michigan. But anyway, probably... An hour and a half, two hours out of Ann Arbor, I had to go IFR because there was a big snowstorm. So I made a a circling approach into Ann Arbor Airport and was able to maintain ground contact and landed the plane. And I told the fellas that were waiting there, four four guys, uh, two pilots and two mechanics, that uh, we're going to wait till the snowstorm stops and then we'll leave. And it'll probably just be a few hours and we'll leave that night. It'll be a nice trip home. And they, these helicopter guys, they like to go, they don't care what the weather is. Because, you see, they can just go along a road, and if it gets too bad, they just land. And I it was a constant battle with me. And this was the two senior pilots of the company, the chief pilot and the, the second uh, uh, senior pilot were on this crew this day. So they were really hammering me about leaving. And I said, no, no, we're going to wait. And about that time, a little Cessna landed at the Ann Arbor Airport. I think it was a 182. And an elderly lady hopped in and they turned around and left. Well, they said to me, come on, you know, if they can make it, let's go. What's, what's the deal here? And so this was my first mistake, okay, was I said, okay. So I had the plane, I cleaned the plane all off and I had it refueled. We hopped in it. We lined up and I filed my instrument flight plan and off we go. Typical Take off. Uh, the runway, of course, was covered in snow, but the plane, you know, no problem coming right off the ground. It was, a, like I said, very nice flying airplane. Well, I got to about 400 feet. Tower tells me to go ahead and contact departure control, and I acknowledged them. And about that time, the stick shaker came on. In the Beach 18, it had a stick shaker. It would shake like crazy, and that's telling you that it's a stall warning. So I immediately checked my speed and so forth, and it was really decaying quickly and i had already put the gear up and the flaps up and it just was deteriorating real quick that airplane it had superchargers on it so the emergency procedure is everything goes to the firewall you know full power you don't worry about overboosting the engines you try to give it everything it's got and it wasn't enough and i could tell i wasn't going to keep flying this aeroplane and i knew the area from all the times I'd flown in there before, that about five miles away, there was quite a big antenna farm. And there's no way I was going to get around that antenna farm. But I also knew there was lots of fields, lots of farm fields and open areas. So I told the uh, fellow riding shotgun, who was the chief pilot, and I told him, we're going to go down, tell the guys in the back that we're going down. And he was adamant, no, you're not, keep going, we could make it. And I told him, no, we're not going to make it. And this is where pilots mess up because there's a very powerful urge to keep going because you don't want to break the airplane because you know what you have to do is you're going to break the airplane and you don't want to break the airplane. And a lot of folks, this is the decision where they, they don't make the right decision. And my decision was no, we're breaking the airplane because we'll probably have a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand hours rather of instruction time And that's one thing I always beat into my students' head. You always aviate. I said, you always fly the plane. And I don't care where you are. If you land the plane under control, a controlled crash, you have a very high probability of surviving. And it's not the airplane you're worried about. It's you. And let the airplane act as a shock absorber if you can. So now we're back in the plane of course I'm on the instruments it's you know you it's like flying in a pillowcase so I tell my uh, co-pilot the chief pilot I said you tell me when you can see the ground when you see the ground you tell me because I had to stay on the instruments and he told me okay I've got ground contact so then I looked outside and we were just over the trees we were maybe 100 feet and so I realized that okay here's a field so I'm, I'm going to put it in the field. So I put the nose down, I cut the power, and I'm flaring to hit, pulling the fuel off and cutting things off. And we hit pretty hard right wing low, and it kicked it sideways, and we slid to a stop probably less than 100 feet from the tree line. So I was happy that we didn't hit the trees. Then there was a flash fire in the cockpit, and it was like a, just a big quick woof of flames. And then it was gone. And I turned to the co pilot and I'm asking him if he's okay. And he's in a panic. He says his legs or something's wrong with his legs. And I looked, he just had his feet under the rudder pedals and he couldn't get them out. So I got his feet out. And then I went to the back in the cabin area to make sure everybody was okay back there. And the guys are walking around back there, or they're trying to walk around with the seats. The seats had came off. And they're all trying to walk around. And, you know, they got, it's funny, you know, you look back and it's, and I said, well, you guys got to get out of the seats. It'll be a lot easier. So then we tried opening up the, the door that goes to the air stair. There was a, a, a storage compartment and a lavatory door and then the air stair. And that door was jammed, wouldn't open. So I asked them for a fire axe and they gave me a coffee. They gave me a thermos instead because it was starting to fill up with smoke because the right engine caught on fire, because we hit that right wing low. Well, they had a extinguishing system on the airplane. I hit the extinguishers. Of course, that's on the right-hand side. So those lines got severed when we hit two. So the extinguishers did no good, didn't even fire off. So here we are in the cabin, and it's really starting to fill with smoke. And I'm saying to myself, go out the emergency exit. There was another exit. So I went back up to the cockpit to check on the chief pilot, and he wasn't there he was gone. The windshield had cracked and he went over the nose of the plane. He climbed over the yoke and over the instrument panel and he slid off the nose and he landed on his back on the right propeller. It wound up, he chipped his, uh, a bone in his back. We didn't know at the time, but that's what happened. Then I went back to the back cabin again and no one was there. And I quick ran up front because now the plane is completely filled with smoke. And the only thing that wasn't on fire was my seat, my, the pilot seat. And I look outside and they're all standing outside in the snow. And the snow's probably a foot and a half deep out there. So I said, well, you know, I'm not staying here. So I just reared back and kicked out my pilot window and bailed out that window. And I got the guys and I said, let's get away from this thing. It was filled with fuel, and the thing held 300 and something gallons worth of fuel. So I said, let's just get away from it, because it's going to take a while for this thing to stop burning. And about that time, there was fire department from the airport, because we were on the outer edge of the airport boundary. And there was two firemen there, and they were standing watching the plane burn. And I, we all came up behind them, and I tapped them on the shoulder. And, and they're telling me, listen, you're going to have to get away from here. You know, this is an accident. And I said, well, we're from the plane. And my feet are cold. And the, and, the, and the guys, they almost fell down because they thought we were so all in the plane burning to death. So anyway, about that time, they have other emergency vehicles come out on this area. And we get in an ambulance. In this ambulance uh, back then, it was a county ambulance. And there was two guys on it, but nobody stayed in the back with us. They put Blackie, this fellow's name was Blackie uh, Carney. He was the chief pilot. They put him on a backboard. And disabled them. Then the rest of us, we just hopped in the back. And I didn't have shoes because they got blown off, and I was kind of all charred up from the cockpit fire and stuff. And and my legs were just, they felt like solid wood from my knees down from the cold, the snow. So we started going through the compartments of the ambulance. Now, the driver and the other fella, they're up in front in the cab. And we find gauze and cling and things, and we stop wrapping my legs in the gauze to try to get them warm. So by the time we get to the Ann Arbor Hospital and they swing open the back doors of the ambulance, they see a feller on a stretcher and they see another guy that's legs are from the knees down all wrapped in gauze. So they they immediately think that I'm hurt bad, that my legs got crushed or something. So they take Blackie in, they take me and they put me on a gurney and they saying let's take him to emergency surgery to make sure his legs are okay and and I'm, I'm trying to sit up on the stretcher and, and, and tell them, well, listen, I'm okay. It's, my feet were just cold, and they're pushing me down, telling me I'm in shock. Oh, he's in shock. Let's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is just a riot. So we get to the emergency room, and they put me up on this table, and, and they're prepping me for what they think is going to be emergency surgery. And as they cut the gauze off my legs, they realize there's nothing wrong with my legs. And so with that, I sit up and I, I tell them, I said, I've been trying to tell you that my legs were just cold. We just wrapped them to keep them warm. So the doctor, he he gave me a one-minute body look over, a look-see to make sure I was okay, and said, okay. So I hop off the table and I go down to the waiting room in the hospital, and I'm walking down the hallway with my socks flopping and my pants all torn and I looked like I was in a street fight. And I get down to the lobby and who's there but the FAA and the uh, NTSB. They're already there. And what I should have done, I should have said nothing. I should have just said, no, I have nothing to say. But they asked me questions and I told them everything I knew. And uh, we all had the big party and it was a real conversation. That was it. Blackie spent a couple of days in the hospital. The the other fella, he called up the boss and told them that the plane crashed, but everybody's okay. I didn't call my wife and tell her that. I just told her that I had to spend the night because she would have gotten real upset. And uh, the next day when I came, we flew home commercial, and uh, when she saw me, she said, what happened to you? And I told her, well, I literally crashed and burned. But the big moral of the story, really, is... If you know you're not going to make it, make that decision as soon as you can. So many pilots think they can make it, and they can't. And they usually stall, spin. These, you hear about the – all of a sudden the plane rolls upside down and hits the ground because it all happens very, very fast. And, I, and that's the one thing I did. I made a bad decision that I decided to go. I let the pressure be, but I'm responsible. You know, you're the pilot in command and it was a big mistake. But I didn't compound the mistake, and I knew that you have to always fly the airplane. And you always aviate, navigate, then communicate. As far as the company was concerned, they actually recovered their loss of the plane. They had good insurance. And probably it was about eight months later, we were going to replace the plane, but then a big recession hit, in the construction industry, and the business dropped down, and 12 of us got laid off. So I came back here to Florida. My next step if I wanted to stay in aviation was to go to Saudi Arabia. And my wife's dad spent 30 years in Saudi Arabia and she has been there a few times and she said, we're not going to Saudi Arabia. So I said, okay. She said, it's time to change careers. So I said, okay. So I came back to Florida, went into construction, wound up in the fire service. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. But I had a hearing and it took two years before the FAA caught up, and the hearing was in Florida. So all the people from the control tower and the uh, witnesses and the NTSB people and everybody, and it was interesting because they couldn't find out what went wrong other than the gear and the flaps weren't all the way up, and it looked like ice got into the flap mechanisms and the uh, gear, which failed for it to come all the way up, producing a lot of drag. And that's the only thing they could think of. I didn't take off with anything adhering to the wings. So none of those rules. But the FAA has a rule that if they can't nail something on you, they've got one in their pocket. And it's basically the rule that says if uh, while operating an aircraft, if there's an accident, uh, you're responsible for it. Uh, so the judge said to me, if he asked me if uh, I was still flying for a living. And I said no. I was still instructing and doing things on the side, but it wasn't my main job. And consequently, he pulled my license for 30 days. And he didn't want to. But anyway, that's the moral of the story is the main thing is always aviate. And if you can't make it, don't try to. Because if you just look at so many accidents, that's what winds up uh, really, the consequences are much greater than the, the value of the plane. The whole idea of aviation, it's, uh, it's not that inherently dangerous. It's just extremely unforgiving. You have to keep your head in the right spot.
0: Over 75% of aviation incidents are attributed to pilot error, which includes faults and judgment even before getting into an airplane. George's story is a great example of what can happen when being pressured into an uncomfortable situation and how to accept and handle what can happen next. To end the show on a lighter note, here's another story George told me from one of his flights while instructing a student pilot.
1: I can't remember exactly what year it was, but it was back then they used to fly. I think they were called oil burner routes or uh, VR routes. And they used to, I believe, come out of Jacksonville, Navy planes, mostly jets, and they'd fly low level over the state and then there was Air Force planes, too, because I remember seeing some real big airplanes. But they'd fly low level. And I was flying in uh, the North Fort Myers area with a, a student. And it was an area I tried to stay away from, but I, was, I thought I was clear of that path. And, uh, and we were doing some ground reference maneuvers. And I looked up, and I saw a, a, a smoke trail. And if you're familiar with an F-4, they smoke. That was one of their big problems as they smoked a lot. And so I wanted to make sure he saw me. So I told the student, let's turn to the left, a steep turn, and really show our wings to this jet who was still a, a few miles out from us. But I know that they fly pretty fast and low. And he saw us. And immediately he went in to a right-hand turn. And the next thing I know, he's all dirtied up. He's got his gear down, his flaps down, he's got his tail hooked down. And he's flying his F4 in a circle out from us and we're flying in a circle. So our circle's a small circle, his circle's a big circle and I've got the little 150 going as hard as it can and he's out there going as slow as he can and in reality we're flying formation with a you know, 150 or 152, can't remember which one it was, and this F-4. Well, that was a that was a real big thrill for me. And uh, I know my students, they were just thrilled to death too. Here you are flying in formation with a military jet. And we did one 360, and then he peeled off. He waved to us goodbye, him and the Rio, the fellow sitting in the back. And they were gone, and we came back and told our, our tale, and uh, it was neat. It was, I was always looking for him from that day on, but I never saw him again, but uh, that was fun.
0: George Dewitt is retired today and living in central Florida. He's still a pilot and for fun, he's currently rebuilding a Titan aircraft tornado, which is a small high wing kit aircraft. George actually has some pictures from the crash mentioned in the story. And you can check those out, along with other images of George, his tornado, and more information about these stories by going to the article at the LogbookPodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released. And you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.